All right. Well, good morning again. It is fun to be here today. It's fun. It's going to be a good day. Looking forward to this message. I'm going to talk about pancakes for a couple minutes. Pancakes. How many of you have ever noticed that the first pancake you make never, ever turns out right? It never, ever does. I mean, for the longest time, I thought it was just me, but recently I learned that there is an actual term for the first pancake not turning out right. It's called the law of the first pancake. Some people call it the theory of the first pancake. The whole idea is the first pancake never turns out right, but the first pancake is always preparation for the second one. The second one's going to turn out, but the first one never turns out. And so this little law of the first pancake or theory of the first pancake, people extend it into all areas of life. They'll say there's a law of first pancakes for your first job. Okay, your first job is going to be a flop, then the second one's going to be good. Or sometimes maybe your first romance is going to end up terribly, but that prepares you for the second one. And so the list goes on and on of kind of sometimes you need to have a flop before you can have a really good one. And so we see that with pancakes. They never turn out right. There's actually a scientific reason to why the first pancake doesn't work out. I'll just give you this little trivia so you feel like really enriched today. But see, pancakes need two things to cook well. Well, maybe more. You need good batter. That's a given. But the grill has to be heated just right and the grill has to be even. And second, you need to have, the grill needs to have the right seasoning on it. Maybe the right amount of butter or oil or some kind of ingredient to grease the pan. And normally that whole chemistry is off until you make the first pancake. The first pancake has a way of distributing the heat as well as from pulling up from the griddle any bad seasoning. So it's just preparation. It's pure preparation. So you do that bad first pancake, you throw it out, and then you can actually start. So that's your little trivia today. But see, the thing that I bring that up is because pancakes are a lot like people. Pancakes have a lot in common with people. That's why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in the New Testament, and Nicodemus said to Jesus, he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, you need to be born again. He said, you need to be made new, or in other words, you could say you need to start all over. Now, you kind of think about it, that's a pretty offensive statement to say to a man that says, how do I receive eternal life? And you basically say, you're the first pancake. You know, I like how Sam Albury says it. He says, what Jesus really said to Nicodemus is this. He said to Nicodemus, you didn't come out right the first time. There's something a little bit odd about you. There's something a little bit goofy about you, Nicodemus. So you need to be born again. You need to become a new person. Listen to how Jesus says it. In John 3, verse 5, Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Kind of what Jesus is saying, your first attempt at life really didn't work out too well. So this time we're going to do it different, but this time what we're going to do different is you're going to do it by surrendering to Christ. See, I like this verse never says, you're going to do it by trying a little harder. There's nowhere is that in the text. And we're pretty grateful for that because I think all of us are a little bit tired of trying harder and trying to figure out 
what we need to do. And this passage just kind of sets us free from that and says, no, you're just going to trust in the one that can make it happen. And that's really good news for all of us. And that's why we love celebrating Passover, why we love to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, because it always reminds us that we don't need to try harder, but we just need to trust in the one who made it all possible for us. I read this great quote by Sharon Miller this week where she says, our hope, our joy, our peace depends on the perfect obedience of one person alone, and it's not you. That's good. Our hope and joy and peace depend on the perfect obedience of one person alone, and it's not you. See, it all goes back to Jesus. And that's Jesus' invitation for all of us, that you can have joy and peace and hope and love. But see, the truth is, some of us, we really don't like the terms of this invitation. Because the terms of this invitation is that we have to be born again. And that's usually the place that people start to object. Kind of like, I don't know if I like that whole idea of being born again. And one of the best objections to being born again is people can say, well, God made me in the first place. So if God made me, I'm this way, then you're just going to have to deal with it. Now that sounds like a pretty good answer. We are created in the God's image. God created us before the foundations of the world. So if I came out this way, what's the problem with it? Why, Jesus, are you telling Nicodemus he has to be born again? Or as Sam Aubrey says, why are you telling Nicodemus he came out funny the first time? See, that answer can actually be very offensive to people when you say you have to be born again. Because what you're saying to them is there's something wrong with you. But see, in the words of Jesus, you need to be born again that can actually be a big relief to you as well. See, I find great comforts in the words of Jesus that that kind of explains some of the unusual things about my life. That might explain some of the bad habits in my life or my, my propensities or my vulnerabilities or the things I don't like about myself. I find comfort in the words of Jesus saying, you just need to be born again, Jack. See, the reason that we need to be born again is not because we're created in the image of God. The reason we have to be born again is because of the fallen nature of the human race. See, all of us were born into a world where there's sin and it's distorted us. It's disorientated us. So a lot of us were born with desires and instincts and ideas that didn't come from God at all. We are just born into that. See, you're really not the problem. The sin in the world is the problem. And that's what Jesus is saying. You need to be born again so you can be separated from the sin in the world. And that's a relief. Because a lot of us are well aware of some things in our life that we don't like. A lot of us are well aware of our desires in our life we don't like. And it goes way beyond sexual desires or temptation. You think about selfishness. Think about greed. Think about arrogance and think about gossip and slander. These things that are kind of part of us at times that we don't like at all, but yet, to be honest, sometimes we kind of enjoy doing these kind of things. And that's the invitation this time of year that we can have freedom from those things in our life. See, so often we look for freedom by looking at another person and saying, 
boy, if I was just like that person, my life would be a little easier. If maybe I had that person's job, my life would be easier. If I had that person's bank account or if I had that person's body figure, my life would be easier. We kind of look around at other people and think that would be a better life. But the truth is, when you peel back all the excuses and the hurts and the emotions, we all just want to really be comfortable being ourselves. At the end of the day, you just want to be yourself, but you want to be comfortable and you want to be secure in being who you are. And that's Jesus' message to the world, that if you follow me, you are going to become who God originally intended you to be. That's Christ's message to the world. But then Jesus says something really odd. Listen to what he says in Matthew 16 about following him. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your own soul? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, this is probably not going to be as easy as you thought. Because you're going to have to say no to some of the things in your life. And it's hard to do. Because sometimes there's things that we enjoy doing that we're not supposed to be doing. But see, this is what happens when we follow Jesus and we follow his words. We actually become more like Jesus. We don't become like the person that we sometimes envy. We actually become like Jesus. And we start to do the things that Jesus did. As we become more like Jesus, we become more like our authentic, true self. The more I become like Jesus, the more I actually become Jack. The more we become like Jesus and do the things he did, the more you become the person you were created to be. But see, then along the way, sometimes we're like, yeah, but sometimes I still have some of my old desires, or I have my old temptations, or my own bent towards sin, and we think, does that mean it's okay, or what am I supposed to do? So when you struggle with those temptations, all it is is a simple reminder that on a daily basis, you need to surrender your life to Jesus. That on a daily basis, we surrender. It's not we did it once in our life, but it's a daily activity that we did because sin is still trying to distort us or disorientate us. But that's why we celebrate Passover and we celebrate Good Friday in the resurrection of Jesus because we celebrate because God always has a plan to rescue, always has a plan to redeem, always has a plan to interject into our life, intercede in our life, when things get a little difficult, because all of us really can struggle. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, you can still struggle, because there's two different paths that you can go down. There's two battles that we deal with. On the one hand, the culture of our days tries to tell us, hey, you just follow your heart, do whatever you want to do. That's where you're going to find your happiness. And Jesus is on the other side and said, no, the more you follow me, that's where you're going to find your happiness. And sometimes we stand between these two options, and it's kind of hard. It's not as easy to, as it sounds. Because the truth is, all of us have some kind of limp in our life. All of us have some kind of difficulty in our life, or some obstacle in our life, or some burden that we have, or propensity towards sin. We all have some kind of limp in our life. 
And when you have a limp, you're always looking for something to lean on. And what are you going to lean on when your limp seems to be really hurting you badly? See, I think over the last two years, a lot of people have developed additional limps during COVID. It's been hard. It's been difficult. People dealt with isolation and loneliness and abandonment and all the other issues that happened during COVID. A good friend of mine said to me the other day, he said, yeah, as we come out of COVID, I don't even know where I belong anymore. The world has shifted so much. And this guy who loves God with all his heart is like, I don't know where I belong. I don't seem to fit in anywhere anymore. COVID's been hard. Not to mention if you had a limp before COVID and then that accelerates it, it's hard and it's difficult. Because when you limp, you're looking for something to lean on. And when you limp, it hurts your entire body. Two years ago, I, I broke some little fractures, some bones in my foot. No big deal. The ER says nothing to do. Just, you know, suck it up. But I limped for a while because it hurt. And, you know, sooner or later, it affected my entire body because you walk wrong, your gait's wrong. Next thing you know, it affects your other knee. Next thing you know, it just hurts your shoulder. That little bone in my toe breaking impacted my entire body. It doesn't matter it was a teeny little fraction. The doctor's like, there's nothing we can do. I can put tape on it if that'll make you feel better. But sooner or later, it affects your entire body. So the big question I have for you today is, are you limping? Are any of you limping right now? And what is your limp? Then the next question is, what are you leaning on? What are you leaning on right now? See, there's an interesting word in the Old Testament that means both limp and leap at the same time. It's kind of an unusual word. You don't expect one word could mean limping and leaping at the same time. It's sort of a juxtaposition where you put two things next to each other and you're like, that really doesn't make sense. But it is the same word. And it is a little bit confusing but I think if we're all really honest, we can say, you know, when I do look at the Bible, sometimes I get really confused. There's times I read the Bible and it doesn't make as much sense as I would like it to. And I think one of the things that we forget is the Bible was written from Genesis to Revelation. Basically, it's a Jewish document. It was a Jewish document written to a Jewish nation that was filled with Jewish people that included a lot of Jewish customs and a lot of Jewish laws and festivities. So if you're going to understand the Bible, you kind of really need to understand Jewish culture and feast. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. I don't get that Jewish stuff. Or like, I don't need to understand that. Yeah, you do. You have to kind of understand it for it to make sense. I remember the first time celebrating Christmas at Becky's family, Becky, with Becky's family. I was like, this is the craziest thing in the world. First of all, they lived in Southern California, so they flocked their Christmas tree, which means you put this white chemicals on it to make, like, make it look like the tree has snow on it. I mean, that's the stupidest thing I've ever saw. I mean, come on, it's the tree's in the house. Logic would tell you that would melt. But no, all the Californians, let's put our tree in our house to flock. It's the craziest thing. And then not just all the Christmas rituals. I mean, they mix a little Bolivia in with a little Southern California, and it's just strange. It's good. Even though I was from the same country as her, it was like a totally different Christmas. 
But I had to understand her family's Christmas tradition if we're going to still be married 25 years later. But that's kind of with the Bible. Sometimes you got to say, all right, let me understand some of these feasts and festivities because then I can understand the Bible a little bit better. And that's why for the last month we've been talking about Purim, talking about this feast in the book of Esther where they celebrate divine reversal, that all of the Jewish people, the month before Jesus goes to the cross, they are remembering that God always has a plan of reversal. That no matter what your life looks like, no matter how poor your situation looks like, no matter how desperate you are, that God has a plan. And this is where our lives so intersect with the Jewish community. This is where our lives as followers of Jesus intersect with the Jewish nation of the Israelites in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people are always referred to as what? God's chosen people. And you sit back and you say, well, why are they chosen? Does God just like them better? Were they more obedient to God? So God said, okay, uh, you're, 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 you behave better so you can be chosen? Did God like them because they looked different? Or why were they chosen? See, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're also chosen. So it's good to ask the question, what what does this whole chosen mean? See, they were chosen by God because God desired to have a relationship with them and in return, they were to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's why you're chosen by God. You're chosen by God for a relationship with Him, and then you're chosen to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Over and over again in the Bible, over 28 times, God says to the nation of Israel, you will, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's the same thing that God says to us as followers of Jesus. You are chosen to be a blessing to the rest of the world. See, God's plan was simple in the Old Testament. God's whole idea was, I will have this really great relationship with the Israelites. All the other nations will look at it and say, wow, that's a beautiful relationship. I wish God was my God. I like that. And they would walk on over and become an Israelite. That was his plan. You could say that God's relationship with the Israelites was supposed to be a prototype for how relationships with God work. You look at it, remember at Abraham in um, Genesis 12. Listen to how God planned to work through Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. That was God's plan for the nation of Israel. And that is God's plan for you and I. That we would become a blessing to everybody around us. We are chosen to display to others what a good relationship, what a healthy relationship, and what a relationship with God looks like. Your life is designed to be a testimony. Your life is designed to be a testimony of the goodness of God. Your life is designed to be a testimony of what it looks like to be encountered by Jesus. 
Your life is designed to be a testimony of what it looks like to be restored by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and changes your story from going into one direction to a new direction, you are designed to be a testimony. So you can bless the rest of the world. That's what God wants from you and I, to bless the rest of the world. But unfortunately, the Israelites, they weren't often the best at maintaining a relationship with God. As you know, they quite often sinned, or they worshipped a false god, or they kind of just were disobedient. Despite the grace that God gave them, despite the prophets that God sent to them, it was kind of a pattern of the Israelites to kind of sin. So what did God do? He said, We're gonna, I'm going to remind you on an annual basis about how you relate to me and how I relate to you. So God reminded the Israelites by putting these various feasts and festivals all through their calendar. Then on a regular basis, there were seven of these big feasts and festivals that they all participated in. And then there's, during the year, there's these minor feasts and festivals like Purim that they would, that they would uh, celebrate. And the whole reason for all these feasts and festivals was to remind the Israelites how they relate to God. There's sort of like a reset button, if you will. And see, all of us, we need reminders as well. That's why it's important that we celebrate Holy Week and the death and resurrection of Jesus and we celebrate Christmas. It's a good thing to remind us. So right now we're on the season of Passover, which coincides with Good Friday and Palm Sunday and Easter. I can't, I just want to say again that um, understanding the Jewish background of Jesus' work is so important to do because it helps give us real context to Jesus' teaching. So that's why we talk so much about Passover right now as we're entering to Passover. Now, Passover technically starts on April 15 and goes for seven days, but we're in a Passover season. Kind of like Christmas is December 25, but really Christmas starts the month before and goes a couple weeks later. So we're in the, fa- the, the season of Passover, and Passover is all to celebrate redemption because it reminds the children of Israel how God set them free from Egypt thousands of years earlier. And in return, they would give thanks. So Passover, that was celebrated by Jesus. That was celebrated after Jesus died. Jesus' disciples celebrated Passover every year. And it's a good thing for us to celebrate What I like about the Passover is the Israelites would remember that thousands of years earlier, God rescued their ancestors. They knew that they were connected to their ancestors. Sometimes I think we think we're outside of this box of the lineage and heritage that goes back generations in the Bible. But we need to be like the Israelites and celebrate that our ancestors were saved out of Egypt as well. We celebrate it because it reminds us. It reminds us that God always hears our prayers when we're in captivity. It reminds us that there's not a wasted prayer. Even though the Israelites, I'm sure while they were 400 years in Egypt, probably thought, God, you haven't heard a thing I've said. I'm sure they were pretty discouraged. I'm pretty sure they got up some mornings and they thought, is there really a God? Does he hear me? Does he listen to me? But that's why we go back and celebrate Passover because the answer is yes. No matter what your situation, no matter what you're facing, no matter how you're discouraged, once a year we say it's Passover and we're going to remember that God saved the Israelites 
and he saved me too. Because what God taught the Israelites through Passover is the principle of redemption through a substitute. He taught them the principle of redemption through a substitute. A lot of you remember the story. There's the 10 plagues in Egypt that God was trying to get the Israelites out, and the Pharaoh kept saying, no, no, no. And finally, it came to the one final plague, and God said to the Israelites, all the people of Egypt, look, the firstborn male is going to die tonight. Every family is going to experience a death in their family unless, unless you take a lamb and sacrifice it and sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And when the angel comes by your house tonight, if there's blood on your doorpost, you'll find salvation. That the angel will pass over your house and you'll be spared death. And all the families who put blood on their doorposts, they woke up that morning being spared from death. And that's what God taught in the first Passover, the redemption of people through a substitute. And that's why we celebrate that our life was spared because of a substitute. Somebody stood at our place. And that's why I love the word Passover. It's a very unique Hebrew word. It's pronounced in Hebrew, Pesach. And it has two different meanings. On one hand, the word means to be lame or to limp or to wobble. You know what it looks like to be lame or limp or wobble. Then on the other hand, it means to pass over or to jump, or to leap. One word has such different meanings. But why would God want this one Passover? Why would he want Pesach to be a word that's so common in our language? Why? Because it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what your relationship with Christ looks like. It doesn't matter if you're limping. It doesn't matter if you're wobbling. It doesn't matter if you're hopping along on just one foot. Because with your relationship with Christ, you can leap over any obstacle in your life. You can have freedom over any issue in your life. Our limitations do not limit us when you're connected with Christ because suddenly we're able to leap. We're able to pass over whatever obstacle is in our way. That's the goodness of your salvation, that your limitations did not impact you eternally. See, the truth is God could have condemned Adam and Eve in the garden, could have walked up to him and said, done. God could have said that to you and I if we sinned. He could have said, you're over with. You're going to be punished eternally. But because of God's great love and compassion, he said, I have a plan of salvation for you. I'm going to have a substitute die in your place. See, God's love is motivated by his desire to restore and redeem all mankind. See, the hard reality is we could all be paying for our own sins. Somebody has to pay for your sins. The wages of sin is death. Somebody's going to have to pay for your sins, and it could be you. 
Each of us could pay for our own sins and be separated from God for eternity. But because of Jesus, we can have a substitute in our life. And that's God's plan to save us through a substitute. The scripture is pretty clear that life was not easy for Jesus. Life was hard for Jesus. Jesus had to experience every single struggle and temptation that you and I have had to experience. And he had to do it without sinning. There's not one, tempta- there's not one temptation that you faced that Jesus didn't face. Jesus had to face every single temptation that we would face. He had to know what it was like to experience rejection. He had to know what it was like to experience sorrow or grief or disappointment or discouragement. He had to know what it felt like to be hopeless. Why? So he could be a perfect substitute for you. Jesus had to know exactly what it was like to be you so he could be a substitute. He didn't get an easy pass just because he was the son of God. He had experienced what you all have experienced. All the shameful things that you've experienced. Jesus had experienced those temptations and those feelings. Even remember in Matthew 26, it said when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he fell to his face to the ground. He said, God, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. In other words, what he said to God was, is there another plan so I don't have to go to the cross? I would kind of like that. Because Jesus knew it was hard and it was difficult, the path he was going down. But Jesus went to the cross because he was obedient to God. But he did it for another really, really good reason. There was something else that motivated Jesus that night. See, Jesus went to the cross because he is your friend. Jesus went to that cross because he is your friend. That's sometimes a hard word to understand he's your friend especially if you don't have very good friends in your life. Or maybe you had a friend in your life that really disappointed you. But Jesus went to the cross because he's your friend. See, about 700 years before Jesus went to the cross, the prophet Isaiah prophesied the following verses about Jesus. A lot of you probably know Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it says, But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This word here, wounds, refers to the wounds that Jesus experienced when he went to the cross. Many of you know that Jesus wasn't just put on the cross and died, but he was severely beaten before he went to the cross. But it's interesting that that word for wounds in the Old Testament, the root word for the word wounds in the Hebrew means to unite, to join together, or to have fellowship with, or make an ally of. 
See, that word for wounds in modern Hebrew could be simply translated as friend. See, another way to read Isaiah 53 verse 5 is this. By his friendship, we are healed. See, not only does Jesus take on our pain, in our suffering, in our guilt, but he brings us restoration through a friendship, through a genuine, authentic relationship. See, that's why Christian community is so important because the spreading of the gospel was designed to be spread through friendship. That's what Jesus did. He became a friend so he could spread the gospel. In John 15, 13, it sums it up right here. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. That's what Jesus modeled, and that's what Jesus did. He showed his love to you and I by dying on the cross to be our friend. And that's the message of Passover. The message of Passover is that you have a Savior who's also your friend. You have a Savior that you can lean on. Jesus wants to be the one that you lean on when you have a limp. When life is difficult, that's how we can pass over because we have a friend that we can lean on. That's the celebration of Passover is you have a friend. And that's really good news in a world that seems so torn apart that you had a friend that gave up his life for you that you have a friend that became a perfect substitute for you, that you have a friend that was wounded so you could have salvation. And that's why we're celebrating communion today. We're celebrating communion today because we have a friend and a Savior that wants to see us redeemed and restored and renewed. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, it says, For I I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do this in remembrance. For the people of Israel, the best way you remember is to tell your story. The best way to remember is you tell other people what God has done in your life. You tell other people about your friend named Jesus. So as we take this today, let's do it in celebration of what God has done, but encouragement of what is God's going to do in the future. We take this today remembering we have every single thing that we need. And the person and the friendship of Jesus Christ. We don't lack anything.
So, all right. Now you might have lack of skill to peel this thing apart, but that's another story. So take the top little cellophane layer off. And here's your little gluten-free wafer. Let's take this together, thanking God that we have what we need. And then let's peel back the second layer. Or a little juice cup. And let's ask God and thank God for boldness. Sammy, do you want to get the cups? Do you want to walk around? And Sam will be your usher. So let me pray, and let's have our worship team finish up. God, I thank you today that we have a friend, and his name is Jesus. I thank you, God, that you are our Lord and Savior, but you're our friend. God, I pray that we would understand what that really means today. Lord, that's hard because so many of us have been disappointed by friends or hurt by friends or maybe lack of friends. But God, I pray today that you'd minister to us so we can walk out of here with confidence saying, I really do have a friend named Jesus. And that Jesus' wounds are a sign of his friendship for me. That is a true friend that would take such a beating and die on a cross for us. That is a true friend that he laid down his life. So we thank you for that today. And God, I pray that the confidence of having a friend in Jesus would spread to every single person listening to me. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.